0: Hey, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to At Risk, brought to you by Interact. It is Indigenous History Month, but make no mistake, Canada's colonial past is not dead. It is not even past. That does not mean there is no cause for hope, though. My two guests today are helping to build that better future for all of us. And we, in fact, enjoy some good laughs during our discussion about how to get there. First, I'm joined by Michelle Good. Michelle is a lawyer, poet, author, and winner of this year's Amazon First Novel Award for the novel Five Little Indians, which follows the lives of five residential school survivors. Michelle is of Cree ancestry, a descendant of the Battle River Cree, and a member of the Red Pheasant Cree Nation. Five Little Indians is a best-selling work of fiction that conveys a profound truth. With her infectious choix de vivre and engrossing storytelling, Michelle extends the kindest of invitations to bear witness to the intergenerational harms caused by residential schools. Next, I speak with Dr. Lisa Richardson. Dr. Richardson is an executive with the National Consortium on Indigenous Medical Education and strategic advisor on Indigenous health at the University of Toronto's Temerati Faculty of Medicine. She is Anishinaabekwe and has been working on reserve as well as in Toronto's clinics to vaccinate First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples. In a far-ranging conversation, We discuss the critical role of self determination in better health outcomes for Indigenous people, the scaling of Indigenous health education, and the necessity of Indigenous health legislation. In spite of the barriers, Dr. Richardson is confident that progress cannot be stopped and we'll all be the better for it. Doctor's orders. Before reconciliation can be accomplished, we must appreciate the truth. And I give thanks to Michelle and Lisa for their creative and diligent efforts to spread it. To borrow Michelle's metaphor that you'll hear later in the episode, we cannot take the ingredients of the past out of today's meal, but we can keep adding better ingredients to make a more nourishing future. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me, Michelle, and welcome to At Risk.
1: Thank you. I'm very happy to be here and thanks for the invitation.
0: Michelle, you are the woman of the hour. Tell us about all of the accolades your wonderful book, Five Little Indians, is receiving.
1: Well, you know, it, it is really very surprising to me that the book has been received um, as it has been. And, you know, when you sit down to write a book, you're not thinking about awards or, you know, you're not even thinking about publishing. Like, if you focus on on those kinds of things, you'll never get it done. It'll never happen. And, uh, you know, but it, it, it really has been, um, you know, quite a glorious surprise. And for me, the real importance of the awards is that it elevates the book in the public consciousness and that perhaps more people will pick it up and more people will open themselves to a different perspective on this history and not just history, but history that is, that continues to
0: play out today. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you, um, you know, sometimes we talk about art for art's sake, but that's not what this is. You wrote this book to have impact. Tell us about that impact you were hoping to achieve.
1: Well, you know, there's been so much work, um, wonderful work that's been done on the residential schools. I mean, we have lots of memoir from survivors and we have, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Report, tons of work that's been done in the academy. But I felt that, and this was primary reason that I proceeded um, in the fiction genre, is that is that people really, really did not understand the true and lasting impact of what happened in these schools, what happened to these kids over 120 years, what happened to the communities over 120 years. Because we didn't just experience this as individuals, we experienced it as a people. And it impacted our communities, parents, grandparents, just as much as it impacted those little kids. And so I got so sick and tired of, you know, hearing this terrible thing, you know, the the ubiquitous and just so awful question of why can't they just get over it? And I wanted to answer that question. I wanted to sit down and paint a picture of what it means to be a survivor, whether that's, you know, a direct survivor in the sense that they've attended the school for the intergenerational survivors who also suffer very deeply from this terrible
0: legacy. So
1: that's what I set out to do.
0: Do you think we should consider using art, literature, visual arts more to advance, you know, public policy issues? Absolutely. You know, we need to uh, tell this
1: story and other stories in as many ways as we possibly can in order, because people all receive information differently. And that was another thing that I felt about this book is that by making it a fictional account, it's safer for, for people to walk into this book. And then I trap them. (laughs) (laughs) But, but yeah, it is because they have before they turn the first page, they have an out they can say well it 's just fiction it 's you know it 's just a story, and they can say, Oh, you know it 's just art, right, but art reflects life and um, and the 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 advantage of proceeding by way of a fictional account is that you have a much greater latitude to tell the truth of the story without being limited to a given set of facts, if you will. And, you know, and I've said it many times and, uh, and over the years that it took to write this and, you know, even before, that something need not be factual in order to be true, that the essence of truth can be reflected artistically, fictionally, visually, in whatever way. And I think that's one of the reasons that this book is resonating in the way that it is, is that people are feeling this truth in a very visceral way when they read this book in a very human personalized way, which, you know, I mean, I'm just dancing that, (laughs) that, you know, people are feeling it, you know, that people are picking it up and getting that very, as I say, visceral sense of this reality.
0: I wanted to ask about the impact of the book on you. Um uh you you previously represented survivors of residential schools. You're 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 trained, uh, you have legal training. Um uh you've talked uh in other instances uh, about your mother. Was there any healing for you or other type of impact um through the process? Of writing this book, I'll I'll just briefly share. At one point, I'm I'm a lawyer as well, and at one point, I was representing um, survivors of uh, sexual assault, and I had to step away. Like I found myself, you know, afraid to walk home alone, um, and when that combined with a personal loss in in my own life, it, it just became harder to manage the the boundaries that 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 protects your your own well-being as uh, so so what was was there was there a positive impact on you and did you need to do some healing through writing this book
1: well yeah you know I mean I I don't know that that my own healing if you will um happened through the course of writing this book I mean I've suffered my own traumas and so on but um but there was a great I suppose I felt very empowered by letting these characters who really took on a life of their own very early on in the writing process and just letting them tell me their story, right? The way people tell their stories. And then, you know, so many times when I was writing this book, I felt like a scribe. I've said it before. I felt like that these stories were in the air and they were just coming through me to, you know, to articulate in this way. And you know, there were some things that were very, very difficult to write about. Um, you know, um, writing about Lily was very, very difficult for me because Lily was a real person, and my mother watched her hemorrhage to death from tuberculosis at residential school. Mm. And I wrote a poem about Lily, gee, I think it was like 1994, (laughs) you know, back in the dark ages. And um, the last line of that poem was, Lily, I remember. And that's what I want. That's why I put Lily's proper name in the book and recounted that story in that way. Um, because she was a real little girl. And, you know, her life and her death, imagine just being a little girl and dying surrounded by strangers without any comfort or proper care or, you know, and imagine the impact on my mother being a little girl herself and watching her friend die. So... So there were times in the book, there were things that, that I felt I had to share, that I had to write about, and in doing it, I felt that I, um, that I fulfilled some obligations, if you will, in terms of mm-hmm. my own life, that I have some understandings and some experiences that are quite rare, and... Um, And this was my opportunity to articulate them in this way so that maybe people can understand um, what this is really all about.
0: I saw on Twitter there was a suggestion that this book should be included on high school reading lists. What what, what do you think about that? Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Me too.
1: (laughs) And I know that uh, I, I... you know, basically, if I'm ever asked to speak at a school, I probably shouldn't say this, but I do, and um, and I've I've met virtually with a number of classes, um, and you know, with what is available to kids, I at first my first thought about this is, you know, there's some pretty grim stuff in here, and some pretty uh, um, I can't find the word at the moment, some pretty explicit um, subject matter. And I thought maybe it's a bit much for high school. And then I thought, wait a minute. (laughs) All I have to do is just Google anything and they can see all of the horror of humanity, right? So, um, And I think that the learning that's available in this book far outweighs any kind of uh, shock that somebody might experience. So I would love to see that. I know that a professor in Newfoundland has used it in her first year English class. And I think that would be... Pretty spectacular, if it uh, became a part of curriculum, that was something that I really sought to do in the writing as well is to make it as um, accessible as possible. Um, I can write you know we 're lawyers right <laughs> you know, I can write in a very complex and a very obtuse way if need be and uh, and i I really wanted this to I wanted people. Um, at basically any reading level, to be able to absorb the book and enjoy it and experience it, and so um, I took a particular style that I might not have taken in another book.
0: I also felt um, so. Now it's my turn to struggle for words. Maybe reserved isn't the the right word, but there there's a lot of um, you don't you don't explain. You don't go into uh, detail about traumas, but you definitely convey them. And not only do I think that helps, you know, with, with, with a younger audience, I think it helps with a lot of audiences who may, who may have traumas, but, but, but want to read the book. That's right. And I, 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 lots of readers reach out
1: to me. They, track me down on my webpage and they send me emails. They're just lovely to get. They really are. And, uh, and many of them respond saying, uh, you know, without going into gory detail, you've expressed this, you know, we get it, but without all of the gory detail. And I mean, I wasn't so concerned about it being triggering to other people as being off putting. And, um, and the fact of the matter is, is that I didn't want to give any airtime to the abusers, right? Or to the abuse. I didn't want the abuse itself to uh, overshadow the the stories, because the stories are not so much about the abuse; they're about the impacts of the abuse, and they're about the qualities of these characters if you will my little kids right it's about their qualities and their strengths and what they've had to um, muster to even try to have even a modest life and that's the focus of this story not the abusers and I mean this book has been very different at different times during its development um at one time, there was a big whole chapter about how Sister Mary turned into a monster, <laughs> uh, which I cut. And, uh, and again, for the reason, because it's just not her story. It's not about the church. It's not about the feds. It's not about any of that. It's about these kids.
0: And while, of course, it's fiction, uh, you know, it's, it's, not the, it's, it's not the ancient past, is it? The, both the present. The, it is the present. Yeah, it's totally the present.
1: And, you know, there are, you know, history is a really interesting thing. And I love history. I am really kind of a history junkie. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but history is not like a, like a cell that you look at under a microscope. History is like the ingredients in the cake we're eating today. Okay, it's, it's how we have constructed the world that we're living in today. And, you know, we've had the, the announcement of the discovery at Kamloops, and that really just should demonstrate that, that this is not, Mm. you know, something that we can just close a door on and think it's the past. It has no relevance or meaning or no presence in the present, because it certainly does. It obviously, right? Obviously.
0: Yeah. yeah. It made me think of Faulkner. The past is not dead. It's not even past. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> it's That's like, right. It, well, here we are, right? It's not even past.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. Um, yes. uh, so, you did mention about being a writer and how, how, you know, it can be obtuse writing or sometimes it can be like, you know, really clinical. Too right, mm-hmm. numbered paragraphs, and you know, just the facts, ma'am. Um, how did you keep your creative writing skills, you know, honed? How, like, like honestly, I find myself sometimes. I joke with people. It's like I, am you know, uh, my mother since passed, but it's like you know, if I was writing to my mother, hello, mother, I have three points. <laughs> you know, one, two, three. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: Well, again, it's the story, right? It's the story that drives the writing and these like I say these these characters really came to life really quickly they became real people to me and I think of them I still to this day think of them as my kids right Mm. they're my little kids and uh you know and in many ways they were telling the story it's I I created this construct in terms of who each of these characters were in a weird sort of way because I started with the injuries that had been done to them. And then from there I said, okay, so you've been injured in this way. How does it affect you? But also how does it, how does it, uh, I guess, mold who you will be as a person who, how, how do you grow into an adult after having, you know, experienced those kinds of abuses I also thought that, you know, just sort of really florid writing was not right, right for this kind of storytelling. I mean, you don't want to get into the description of the details of abuse or, you know, those kinds of things. You just, you don't want to get into it. Let me just say it this way. The story itself defined the style and, you know, I'm working on another book right now and the style is quite different. It's it's quite different, mm. um, but I really do feel that the story of each of these five kids and their friends um, really defined how it had
0: to be told. Mm, Beautiful. So there you're an advocate and there's an advocate in the book. I have to be schmaltzy. I have to ask, is there some of you in Clara?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I want to say no, you know, I, I want to say no because really this book is about and for them. It's not about me, um, and you know, lots of people ask because of the advocacy aspect of this. But uh, I didn't. I didn't create that aspect of Clara's character, um, you know, as a reflection of my own life. It was really because the court workers were so important when they first came into being, and they were so important in terms of being basically the first opportunity for Indigenous voices to be heard in the courtroom. And, you know, for, you know, Indigenous defendants, if you will, to not just plead guilty, because it's the easiest, it's the easiest thing to do, right? And then, and at that particular time, that was occurring, right, at that particular time. And so it was an important part of the general story of the world as it was developing for Indigenous people at that time. So I put that in there. But, you know, I'm sure, <laughs> I mean, I was just aging out of foster care right around the time that, you know, that, uh, that these kids were aging out of residential school. My characters were aging out of res- residential school. So, so many of the experiences that they had trying to find their way in the city, I had. And, you know, we hear a lot these days about providing supports for kids coming out of foster care, but back then it was nothing. It was just, you turn 18, if you've got a nickel in your pocket, that's it, sink or swim, period, right? Throw you into the ocean and that's it, you're on your own. So, you know, so um, it was important to me to try to uh, reflect some of those things in the book, like... (laughs) Uh, one of the things is when um, when Maisie is bringing Lucy to the Manitou Motel. And by the way, Manitou is the Cree word for the creator, okay, for God. <laughs> and so this red light that shines over
0: everything. <laughs> It's got, it's got quite the gatekeeper too, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. There's no St. Peter here, right? No. So, um, but when Maisie is taking Lucy to see Harlan, creepy Harlan at the, at the motel to try and get work. And he tells her to pull her shirt around herself tighter, right? Cause he wants to see what size uniform she would. That happened to me. Mm. I was 13 years old, you know, why was I looking for work at 13 years old? I don't know, but I was. And this slimy guy, yeah, basically did that. And I just thought, you know, it's such a reflection of how we're treated. And then Harlan, you know, Harlan is this, he's a bit stereotypical, I have to say, but he is a, a character that reflects Sort of a, a continuing societal attitude towards Indigenous women. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's that line where he says, um, You Indian chicks are only good for two things, and both of them happen in motel rooms. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, finding opportunities to say those things was an important part of writing this book, too.
0: You've brought it up a couple of times. I wanted to ask you about aging. You know, uh, you 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 won the Amazon First Novel Award for for example, right? Um, and you know uh, that's amazing. But 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 you have said, you know, I probably don't look like uh, many uh, first time uh, novelists. <laughs> but 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 you know, so much, and and particularly with the pandemic, right? And and some of the you know the the terrible uh, loss of life inside uh, long term care facilities. Um, we look at what we lose as we age. What do we gain as we age, Michelle?
1: Well, my goodness, I don't think of it as—I don't ever think of losing things as I age. I—I I don't. I mean, we give value to aged cheese, right? <laughs> wine, <laughs> right? Like, wine, right? Like it's like if we look at that word as being something beyond a chronological counting of years, and you know the you know, wrinkles and white hair and so on and so forth, Uh, you know, somebody asked me, you know, why this happened at this point in my life and why, you know, I didn't write it when I was younger. And I don't think I could have written it when I was younger, quite Mm -hmm. frankly. I don't think I would have brought the depth of experience and understanding that I have, um, if I was writing this as a younger person, I probably would have just got really annoyed and stomped off. <laughs> <laughs> and fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. That was, there were times though, I must say when I had to walk away from the writing and sometimes for a year.
0: Right.
1: Because it was so uh, infuriating and, um frustrating because you know the world is going on around you while you're while you're trying to distill this experience and then you know and you read an article and it's just like oh my god did somebody actually say that like the other day there was an article in the Winnipeg Sun about uh well it was an it was an opinion piece um and uh uh, basically saying you're jumping to, you know, everybody's jumping the gun about these bodies found in Kamloops. We don't know that they're kids. Uh, we don't know how they died, you know, blah, 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 right? Like the, you know, the apologist nonsense that we're constantly dealing with. And, you know, you get that and then you get the comments. Oh, it's just like, you know, and then, you know, Colton Bushy died. Um, during the writing of this book, he's my relation
2: mm.
1: he's from my reserve he we're we were well we still are related and and the terrible commentary that came out of Saskatchewan folk um, after that incident and you know it just sort of shuts you down a little bit and you have to walk away otherwise you're going to
0: write a really mad book and I don't want to write a mad book. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you wrote a great book. And and at times, you know, uh, I mean, I have to say, I, you know, I personally went through uh, just every emotion, like every emotion, right? Because there is a lot of joy in the book, too. There's yes, a lot there of joy. is. Well, you know
1: what I mean? That's, that's really important
0: that um,
1: it has to be balanced, because these are human beings. They're not case studies. They're They're human beings. And of course, uh, you know, and I've said it before that no matter how awful something is, there is always an opportunity for joy and hope, love, affection, loyalty, support for each other. And all of those positive things that, you know, I tried to articulate in the book to demonstrate how these kids are a community for each other when their real community just isn't available to them anymore
0: so the book has been optioned what are your hopes and do you have any fears associated with that I I I think the idea it's for it's for a limited series yeah
1: yeah it is it's been optioned by uh, Prospero Pictures with uh, Marty Cates at the helm and of course Marty made Hotel Rwanda Mm. I know that he understands genocide and that's, of course, what this is all about. It's about genocide. I don't have any fears. But then again, when I was nine years old, after jumping into the deep end of a pool when I couldn't swim, um, <laughs> my mother asked me if there was anything that I was afraid of. And I think I said no. Um, and I don't know that that's a good thing. <laughs> 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 um, but no, I, I don't. And what's so wonderful about it is that there are many people that don't read my son had um you know pretty moderately severe dyslexia and it was so awful because i knew he would never become you know a book lover he would never be a, an avid reader and uh, yeah i have said it he would <laughs> <laughs> rather poke himself in the eye with a needle than read a book right and uh, and for for folks that have a hard time reading they can they can still have the story, right? Absolutely. It reaches out. And I have great confidence in um Shannon Masters. She's Ian Metis, who's going to be writing. And uh and I do have a consulting producer role oh, in the excellent. whole thing. So so I feel very confident that it will be true to the book. And
0: um so that's very exciting. <laughs> it's super exciting. And I can't wait and I can't wait to see it. So before I let you go, I want, uh, we have this central question of this podcast. The podcast is called At Risk. And our central question is, do you truly value something if you're not thinking about how you could lose it? Which is to say, do you have to think about risks? Like, do you you have to think about risks in order to value something?
1: That's really an interesting question. I think if you spend too much time worrying about losing something you're you're not going to reach for it um and you know like with writing this book if I had been fearful that it wouldn't be a success or you know that I would lose something as a result of of writing it I probably wouldn't have written it and you know I think risk is inherent in the world right
0: Michelle, thank you for taking the risk of writing this exceptional and moving work of literature that engrosses as much as it educates. I'm thrilled the book is receiving so much attention and that you're being so deservedly recognized. You know, it's like,
1: it's my first book, so I kind of have to do everything with it, right? (laughs) You know, it could be my last. I could drop dead at this age at any time, right? So, you know, and so it needs to win awards. It needs to be made into a film or something, right? And it needs to rock the world.
0: Well, mission accomplished. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. very kind. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Richardson, and welcome to At
2: Risk. Hi, Jody. Nice to be here.
0: I wanted to ask you. Even at the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic, was anti-Indigenous racism the greatest threat to Indigenous people's health in Canada?
2: Um, I think that's that's an excellent question. I think anti-Indigenous racism is always a threat to Indigenous peoples in the healthcare system. But the way in which I would think about it is how is racism towards Indigenous people manifesting itself in in our society. And so I think when we imagine the, the pandemic um, and and the great risk to Indigenous peoples in Canada related to that pandemic, certainly one of the most significant and concerning factors are the social determinants of Indigenous health. Um, the living conditions, the access to care, um, the food security, the presence of chronic illness, all of those those issues which put Indigenous peoples more at risk in many cases of having either more severe disease or more likely to get COVID. um, Those are actually, although they're social determinants of health, those evolve from structural racism within Canada. Because those, um, the, the reserve system, the uh, condition of housing on reserves, all of that evolves from uh, colonial processes and policies. And they have left um, Indigenous peoples you know, living in the cr- in current situation. So I think one way to look at that question and answer that question is yes. Anti-Indigenous racism is certainly a factor, but I would look at it at the systemic and structural level. Now, clearly, the case of Joyce Echequan also highlights the interperson significant interpersonal racism that um, is always a factor in the well-being of Indigenous peoples in the, in, in healthcare um, and in other institutions. And I think that remains a, a significant factor all the time. And and is it heightened or was it heightened during uh, COVID-19? Um, some of the research suggests that Indigenous peoples did feel that their, their health suffered, um, non-COVID-related um, health conditions suffered more during, during the pandemic. So whether Indigenous, whether that interpersonal racism is a factor, I, I think it probably is. And, and certainly access to care is always an issue
0: thank you that, that That was a very robust answer I, I'm grateful for that um, I wanted to talk a bit about the vaccine rollout, and um, I think in general uh, uh, it's viewed as having gone well. What contributed to uh, an effective vaccine rollout
2: um and, and I think Jody, you're referring specifically to the vaccine rollout. In indigenous communities, is that right? Yes, thank you. Yeah, so I think one of the um, the identification of, of First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples in Canada as a priority population for during phase one for the vaccination was really important. But going back to your comment about racism, it was interesting how that prioritization led to um led to an uh, certainly an increase in racism where people were saying well why are indigenous people getting the vaccine first but that priority emerged because of previous pandemics and, and the terrible impact of uh, H1N1, for example, um, ongoing tuberculosis outbreaks, et cetera, in indigenous, in indigenous communities because of the living conditions that I just spoke about. So that, But I do think that, the, that that prioritization was key and important. And what that prioritization did is that... Um, encouraged Indigenous leaders early on to start thinking about how to um, implement vaccine rollouts and vaccine strategies within their own communities, what they would need to do to um, to get high uptake of the vaccine, to have uh, who did, th- with whom did they need to partner to deliver the vaccine. So I think having that priority established early on and knowing that um, we were going to be vaccinated early um, got all all leaders, Indigenous leaders and organizations mobilizing really early on to start thinking about this. So I think that was one factor. The second is just this idea of self-determination. So that this is not not about having a non-Indigenous partner come in and determine exactly what to do. Um, This is about, you know, chief and council, health managers, um, Métis leaders, um, Inuit elders and and others determining what the needs were and then partnering with um, relevant uh, health providers, government organizations in order to do that. And a really great example is what happened in northwestern and and northeastern Ontario between Nishnabek Nation and Orange, which is an air, uh, which is a um, medical service funded by the provincial government, in which they partnered. And really, it was the Nishnabek Nation and local chief and council in each of those First Nations that determined what the best strategy would be within each community. But Orange brought in the expert, the medical expertise, the um, understanding of how to get healthcare into um, various different environments, how to transport the Moderna vaccine, which needs to be cooled it, it, and, and, you know, at room temperature for a certain number of hours, et cetera. So bringing that expertise together. And it was just a beautiful example of collaborative uh, work and partnership. Um, led by Indigenous peoples with incredible support from non-Indigenous partners. So I think that was another, that's the, the, the idea around self-determination um, with, with amazing support, um, including resources and funding from the partners with expertise.
0: Well, one of the nice things um, in connection with the vaccine rollout was reading your Twitter feed. Uh, because there were times, uh, I mean, you highlighted some challenges, um, but it was also really joyful. Um, what were some of the challenges, though?
2: I think that uh, it it, it, lo- it depends on, on, on the particular context. So I can speak specifically first around the urban context. And I would say the challenge is there that... Unlike in um, a specific First Nation or or Métis community or um, Inuit community where you have, uh, you know, a single um, point person, maybe the manager of health or the council and also a responsible um, government organization. In the urban setting, you don't have that Mm. infrastructure. So although there are many amazing Indigenous organizations on the ground. There was not the support um, that I saw in the, um, on the res- reserves, for example, where um, the government clearly had a responsibility and a role that they took very seriously around that. So in the urban context, you had public health. Units who were scrambling, trying to figure out with whom they should be working, who were their indigenous partners, who should be leading this, and that became a major challenge. So, although it was grassroots initiative, which is phenomenal, the um, workload and the inf- the workload was tremendous for many of us on the ground trying to do the work, and we didn't necessarily have all of the expertise. So, trying to find. Um, find people who could support the work was a challenge. I think it led to some incredible partnerships, and I think it led to um, just amazing work by local indige- urban indigenous organizations. But I would say that was the major major challenge in that place. Um, on in in the reserve on reserve, um, if we think about. Um, uh, rural or remote First Nations, I would say the challenge was around more the logistics and um, how do you get vaccine in? How do you uh, monitor what happens if someone has an allergic reaction? So I think that would be the significant challenge. And that was why it was helpful in Ontario, for example, to have experts who really truly do know how to how to um, deliver healthcare in, in many different settings. So that was the orange group. Um, and I think broad, more broadly, the issue that would apply across the board as a challenge, which is not just a challenge in among Indigenous people, but among others as well, is how um, is, is vaccine confidence? So how do we build confidence among people? Um, who, where there has been experimentation, where vaccines were given in the Indian hospital system without consent, where there is ongoing um, mistreatment and uh, violence against Indigenous peoples in the healthcare system. So, how do we then convince people that vaccination is important? And and that's where the self determination piece. That's where community leadership, um, organizing and understanding how edu- what education needed to be shared, who needed to be role modeling getting vaccines, who should be delivering vaccines, all of that was a way to t- help uh, build confidence in this vaccine.
0: I was speaking with Michelle Good earlier, uh, the author of Five Little Indians, and in her book, uh, she really brings to life, um, uh, through the stories of her characters, how Hospitals are not necessarily places of healing uh, for for Indigenous peoples. That their 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 ties to law enforcement, their ties to child services, uh, apprehensions, um, you know, just really undermines that 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 aspect that you know, or that notion that 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 hospitals are are places for for care. Uh, and healing. And, and, and I don't think, I mean, as much as we all should be, I'm not sure people really appreciate that. And what kind of role that can play in, you know, reasonably in hesitancy.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's t- such a great point, Jody. Hospitals are inhospitable for many people. But when we look at the hospital and healthcare system, For people who have been forcibly removed from community in order to be placed in a TB sanatorium, which was an Indian hospital system to have a segregated form of health care, which is a second tier of care, um, who were, uh, you know, experimented on in the residential school systems in the name of science and biomedicine, who continue to be dehumanized in our emergency departments or in, you know, seeking care for cancer, or other chronic illnesses um, as, as with what happened with Joyce Echequan, there is, it, they are much more than inhospitable. They actually um, can be dangerous places for indigenous people. And so we need to um, really rethink how we structure our hospitals to become more inclusive for Indigenous peoples. And that's not just about providing the state of the art um, cardiac care, cancer care, kidney transplants, whatever it, the need may be. It's about allowing people to have choice to be able to access their culture and medicines, which will pr- bring that uh, a safety and healing. If, they, if a person chooses to do that, it would be wrong and to assume that every Indigenous person wants to access tradition, their traditional medicine. But um, if, if they do want that, who, where is the space for that? Where are the elders who can help explain to their healthcare team, for example why a person may be suffering if they're put on a salt restriction for heart failure because they've been in a residential school and experienced food deprivation. So that so there is so much work to be done in that space. And I think we do need we we can't overlook how vaccines are a part of the institution of healthcare more broadly, public health and also um, acute care medicine. And, and how it can become representative of that. And so the simp- what may seem like a fairly simple act for many actually has a whole, whole lot of, a whole underbelly that actually is needs to be understood and exposed in order to build confidence.
0: So much of creating... Um a safe and welcoming environment for indigenous peoples really starts uh with the education that that uh, you know, future care providers receive, and I, and I know you hold uh, several leadership roles in the medical education space. I was hoping you could talk to us a bit about the, uh, the national consortium uh, that was announced to tackle anti-Indigenous racism in medical education. What's the goal of that? And, and what, what tools are being used to, to, to advance the, this consortium?
2: So the National Consortium in Indigenous Medical Education arose because um, there was an understanding that the need to teach about Indigenous health, cultural safety, anti-racist practice um, was urgent. And that there was a huge amount of variability across our medical schools and and, um, postgraduate medical education uh, centres. Around, around the country. So some are um, well-equipped to do this work and have Indigenous uh, faculty members, Indigenous staff, traditional knowledge keepers and elders and others who are involved. And some, uh, you know, don't even have, barely have, <laughs> say, barely have a team. They may have one faculty member. Um, and we knew that there was a huge need to To bring along, bring everyone along that it wasn't, that this shouldn't depend, your exposure to Indigenous health and and learning shouldn't depend on what medical school you go to. This is fundamental as a competency for any practicing physician. And so this consortium is an opportunity for all of our school, our medical schools and health sciences faculties. Uh, because some medical schools are are aligned with uh, larger, broader faculties of health, health science, um, to work together, to share um, ideas, curriculum, policies, practices. How do we recruit more Indigenous faculty? How do we support Indigenous learners, um, students, how do we, um, you know, someone's developed an amazing module around teaching trauma-informed care related to the experience in the Indian hospital system. How can that be shared across a network? And then how can we collaboratively, collaboratively work also with the organizations that accredit our institutions, like the Royal College um, and... Uh, Those who design curriculum, like the Association of Faculties of Medicine of Canada and the Canadian uh, Family Physicians of Canada, also involved in accreditation meditation, how can we all work together to advance the work? Because it was like we were all being called, there's a handful of us as as Indigenous medical educators and leaders who were being called into all these different institutions, and we were just saying we have to work together. Really, these are, and it's interesting to look at those institutions that I've mentioned, the AFMC, which is the Faculties of Medicine, Association of Faculties of Medicine, the World College, the CFPC, the Medical Council of Canada, they've, They hadn't really come together to work closely on many initiatives in the past. And so to see this collaboration across institutions with all being uh, centered around the Indigenous Physicians Association of Canada as the core partner to lead to ensure that this was Indigenous-led was really important, I think. And, um, you know... it's broad scale change is not going to happen unless there is, unless we're all moving together and we're sharing and, col- and collaborating. And that's really interesting because what I find in many academic institutions, it's built on a culture of individualism and comp- and competition. So, uh, so when you start looking at collective action and uh, collaboration, it's kind of antithetical to, to the culture of many of these uh, orgs and institutions. So to actually see this um, movement, has been phenomenal. And it's also just an amazing community um, for those of us who are doing the work to be able to support one another.
0: Well, that's fantastic. Um, and the, uh, the um, uh, training in conflict resolution and anti-racist practice and, and human rights, uh, having that be a part of medical education, that was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission recommendation, if I understand that correctly.
2: Yes, it was. And it's interesting because isn't that relevant for so much, uh, so many other aspects of medicine? I think it, you know, it, it's interesting. This is an example of where um, supporting the well-being of Indigenous people and Indigenous innovation and ideas, such as those calls to action from the TRC, will elevate the care that all people receive. Because they will, these ideas can help transform our practice, so that not only are we caring for um, our Métis patients or um, uh, First Nations, you know, Haudenosaunee and whomever they may be, um, in terms of their indigeneity, well, but these are skills that will enhance the way we care for all people. So I think um, I I do I do love the that the TRC is. For, has has brought this to the forefront of curriculum in in medical education.
0: Absolutely, I spoke with the um, Association of uh, Black Students at U of T Medicine um, last uh, oh about this time last year, um, and these were exactly the the kinds of issues that they wanted to see become a part of medical education. And, you know, hopefully this, this will, um, this will, you know, really elevate all, all of medicine, because medicine at the end of the day, and, and, and healthcare, in general, it's a people business, right? Like we it's sometimes people get wowed by the tech or you know uh, all of the great innovations um, that that uh, you know are, are brought to the fore, but it, it's still fundamentally people caring for people. So 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 this is just so fundamental to quality and safety.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And again, this is where when we think about. Um, you know, an, an Ishtabe way of being and knowing, for example, which is all about relationship and relationship-based and relational is an example of how these ideas can enhance the care for all. Because I to- and and I think medicine is having this wake-up call right now with artificial intelligence and the sort of technophilia, the real you know love of, of, of medical uh, technology and science is clearly important. But I, I speak to my learners often about the art of medicine and how how listening to patients, learning and understanding um, their perspectives, their experience of an illness is so critical. And it's not only important. To in, enhance their experience of the care, it actually makes you a better clinician. Like y- you, you're able to come to diagnoses and understand things in a different way, and provide a, a different form of care that's not only about treating, um, you know, the physical illness or the physical sickness, but about how do we enhance well-being and, and the wellness of our patients and, and of whole communities too.
0: Another one of the announcements related to consultations on Indigenous health policy legislation. So that's like huge. That, that, that could be so many things. Um, but, but, but let's just start at a, at a high level um, as we turn our minds to it. What, what, what are your hopes as, as a clinician and a leader for, for what this legislation
2: could include or accomplish? I think that um, when we look at indigenous health equity, legislation is going to needs to be a part of, of achieving it. And the reason for that is indigenous health inequities are, are different than many others, because they, are, they have been legislated. they have emerged due to colonial policies that continue to um, be in place, whether it be through, uh, you know, a separate. Um, system to provide insurance for drug coverage and allied health coverage, whether it be through you know the federal funding of public health and um, healthcare delivery on reserve, so that you get have two different jurisdictions. Whether it be through, you know, all of the policies that created inequities, such as the residential school system, the Indian Act, um, the the Indian hospital system, these are these were the, the inequity was built into the system, and so through, including through legislation and policies. So, to counter that, we need to actually. Um, build legislation as well. So I think what's key for me and what I have seen as um, as best or the wise practice to help achieve um, Indigenous well-being for communities is understanding first that self-determination must be respected. As for as per the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Indigenous peoples have the rights to determine what their health priorities are, what their health system in particular environments should look like. And so health transformation um, that enables Indigenous health uh, self-determination, such as what we see with the First Nations Health Authority, is really key. I think secondly, we also need to understand that this um, each community is different the needs are different. And that's where the self-determination piece also, it really helps because not only does it have to be distinct distinctions based, as we say, so recognizing First Nations, Inuit and Métis as as distinct and with different, with distinct leadership um, groups and, and organizations that, that need to be guiding this, but each, even within um, First Nations communities, for example, there's such diversity, not only based on geography and remoteness, et cetera, but also you could have two communities that are, that are, you know, hundred or 50 K apart. So the geography is similar, but the needs are different. So I think that, uh, how do we enable that, um, that specificity and, uh, allow for context specific, um, needs to be met. And and that I think once again is through having that uh, self-determined approach. So uh, the other piece around legislation is we have had report after report after report that showed the same thing. And we haven't seen action and accountability. And I think it's time to really build in accountability around outcomes and also hold people accountable for the kind of racist behavior that we observed Joyce Ashaquan experiencing. So those would be some of the key components for me.
0: You know one of the things when you know when when I try to think about this that 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 I see um, as a challenge is you know we, we talk about health systems but you know at least at the you know at the provincial level they're kind of illness treatment systems <laughs> more than health systems. And, and you know, so, so I think one of the challenges of, of Indigenous health legislation um, to, to really lift up um, outcomes is going to grapple with, you know, how upstream is this legislation uh, daring to go to, to, to actually
2: create better health outcomes? I totally agree jody i 'm someone who who believes in the health and all policies approach. I think we we can't we can 't start to address um, you know high rates of complications from diabetes until we address food security we can't start to look at um, you know not having access to um, let's say, cancer screening or not wanting to have cancer screening until we look at um, meaningful employment and being able, you know, lifting people out of systems of poverty. So I I do see this as having to take, this is where a self-determined approach and bringing Indigenous concepts of well-being to um, thinking about Health legislation is really interesting because how do we think about supporting mental, physical, emotional, spiritual health? Well, it's about connection to land. So, what it, it, it will it will be? I do do see this as potentially being expansive, but I think if we look to um, our communities to lead us, they will say what's most important in to to include um, access to healthy food. Access to language education and culture, access to providers who understand indigeneity and indigenous, more indigenous providers. So, I think that we can, um, through using an indigenous lens, I think we'll be able to understand how to prioritize um, legislation.
0: Premier Legault has refused to uh, acknowledge systemic racism in the healthcare system, specifically anti-Indigenous racism. Um, How much of a roadblock can this be? And, you know, how big of a worry is that for you when you think about this legislation?
2: You know, reconciliation can't come without truth first. And so I think um, an inability to understand and acknowledge the truth of what's happening and the existence of racism and how racism is having um, ongoing daily impacts in the lives of Indigenous peoples here is is a barrier. Will it um, prevent this m- movement um, towards... Um, indigenous tra- health transformation? No, because I, I, think that, I think that we are at a, at a groundswell now of um, understanding both among um, strong Indigenous leaders who are experienced and wise and um, strategic, but I think we're seeing allies and the awakening among allies who are realizing that this just cannot go on anymore. So I think having particular individuals um, be resistant is a problem, but I'm hoping that with pressure from um, many, many different um, contributors in our society and leaders, um, that will change. So I, 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 do, I do feel like there's momentum now, and it's, it, it will be hard to prevent this from advancing
0: and at the end of the day as you said earlier it's also an opportunity to elevate uh, the quality of healthcare more generally <laughs> you know many of these changes will will benefit uh more than indigenous peoples
2: i absolutely I, I truly think that i think that strengths-based approach of understanding Indigenous um, approaches to well being is what's needed, um, and you know I have a friend who went to get get his COVID test at um, at Anishinaabe Health um, Outreach Bus, um, and he, which is an urban Indigenous organization here in Toronto, and he said well, he is not an Indigenous person, and um, as you know, as per Many uh, Indigenous orgs, they don't want to turn away anyone, so he he was able to have his test done there because it was urgent. And he just said, what an experience. Like, it was just an incredible experience comparatively compared to being in other um, non-Indigenous uh, healthcare centers to get tested, and so I think this is an example of where these ways of understanding and being and caring and wraparound care and um, thoughtfulness and relationship relationality will um, make our healthcare system better overall. I have to tell you that I, I mentor and and see and know so many incredible, incredible younger um, Indigenous docs or. Um, nurses or healthcare leaders um, in various across professions, and they inspire me as well. Like they are, they are just so phenomenal. And and I think that is another part of the the equation here is that we have these gr- a growing uh, workforce of of leaders who um, are really connected to their communities and are um, able to walk in both worlds and are going to drive change.
0: Dr. Lisa Richardson, you're one of those leaders. You're a mentor. This is really a transformational moment for, for medical education as well, not just the, the delivery of care, and, and you're, you're a big part of what's driving it. Thank you so much for, for all of your efforts and for your time today in speaking with
2: me. Thank you so much, Jody. It's really been fun and great, great conversation.
0: Hello, I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. For over a year now, I've been sitting down with guests from the world of academia, journalism, politics, and activism to bring you single-issue current affairs discussions to help make sense of today's politics and policy in Canada and around the world. You and I are friends. We are long-time friends. So, the dynamic might be a little different. We might make jokes. A little more vicious, I was thinking. (laughs)
1: Retaining this left right distinction where one group's ideas, you know, the ideology is correct and your ideas, your ideology is wrong. That's exactly how we continue to talk over a big divide and don't get cohesive action on this problem. I think we need to leave our dogma at the door and then we may be able to sort of force our politicians to do something.
0: I think it gets much more difficult to ask for help. The 10th time or the 12th time or yes. the 20th time, especially for people like you or in worse situations like that really cannot leave their house or do not even have the money or the means to carry out various things.
2: But really what I want is action. Mm-hmm. I want people to be engaged. I don't want people to be either panicked or hopeful. I want people to understand that this crisis requires them to do something. And this is a feminist thing, right? Like, giving yourself permission to stop with the punishing thoughts of productivity is a radical act of care right now. I think it always has been in capitalism, and I think now we are confronting just how powerful that can be in terms of our mental health.
0: At its core, this podcast is meant to be a space for discussions that are essential to good policy and a healthy democracy. Open to Debate returns this fall. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.